American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. The future of maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Welcome back to the American Maritime Podcast, powered by Bigwig Podcasts. We're glad to have you aboard. I'm your host, Sara Fuentes, and today we're excited to have back the 25th Commandant of the United States Coast Guard, Admiral Paul Zunkoff. Admiral, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And, you know, first off, I'd like to start off by thanking you so much for your service to this country and for your continued dedication to American maritime and to being a thought leader uh, when it comes to American maritime. It's certainly an honor to serve, especially alongside the great men and women of the Coast Guard. Yeah, really wonderful. Um, So our audience knows from your last visit that you live in Hawaii. And so, of course, we need to start off by asking about the tragedy in Hawaii that's come about from the wildfires and just check in and see how things are going and how that recovery process is happening in your neighborhood. Yeah, most people are used to, you know, any natural disaster. And this one, the jury is still out whether this was natural or man-made. But normally you go through an emergency response phase um, and then you go through um, somewhat of a uh, a recovery phase and then a reconstitution phase. And so right now we're somewhere between recovery and reconstitution, but the really the long road is going to be how do you reconstitute Lahaina? Um, how do you bring in brick mortar and, and everything it takes to reconstitute a village? Um, and you're not going to fly it in. Right. Um, it's not coming by airplane. It's going to come by sea lift. Um, and even during the emergency res- response phase, our, our U.S. flag fleet, namely Matson and Pasha, were, were there at the front lines. Um, you know, pushing everything um, forward. Um, the immediate needs, obviously, food, and now it's shelter, um, and now it's how to reconstitute. So that's going to be a big piece going forward. Um, and sadly, th- we're talking in years. We're not talking weeks, months, but it'll take a number of years. Claims need to be settled, uh, whether there's liability or not, but how do you actually fund the reconstitution of this historic village of Lahaina? Yeah, it's a real tragedy, and our thoughts are with the people of Hawaii. Uh, but speaking of the recovery, the Department of Transportation of Hawaii indicated that there was no delays in bringing the recovery materials, uh, food, other materials needed to the people of Hawaii. Uh, what did it mean to the people of Hawaii to have that dedicated American supply chain coming from their fellow Americans? Yeah. Well, when you talk about the U.S. fleet, it, it's all about ohana, mm-hmm. the, the sense of family um, in, in Hawaii. Um, and immediately, that first sense of Ohana, we're actually in the local residence of, of Maui. I live on the island of Oahu, and, and there were boats being loaded, um, recreational boats, uh, running supplies you know, over to Maui. It's a 60-mile run in open ocean waters. Um, so it wasn't just the U.S. flag fleet, but it was the community of Hawaii as well, Hawaiians helping Hawaiians. Yeah. Um, which uh, is really starting to become the norm with any disaster that we see. The challenge here is you have an island, it's isolated, um, and people realize that help could be a long ways off. But it wasn't because of what we already have in place with our U.S. flag fleet and, again, within our communities. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to us more about that. How did the U.S. flag fleet play a role in this recovery? What, did it, what would it have meant if the Jones Act was not there? Yeah. 
Well, if not us, then who? Right. Um, you know, who has equity um, in a community? Uh, when you look at our U.S. flag fleet, uh, you know, whether it's Matson, Pasha, um, it's not just the shipping they do. Mm -hmm. um, they are involved in, in so much community, non-governmental support um, that funds so many of the charities in the state of Hawaii because there aren't that many corporations that you can tap like you would on the U.S. main ones. So um, not only were they there pushing things forward, but they're also there supporting elements such as Red Cross and, and many of the other charitable Hawaii Food Bank. Uh, and, and a number of those as well. And they have the relationships to begin with. Right, right, because um, they're part of the community. So Hawaiian Food Bank says, hey, we, we've got pallets of food. Can you put them in a container? Can we get them over there? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so it's that relationship piece within the community uh, that, that people don't appreciate until you don't have that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's really inspiring to hear how yeah. people are right. really stretching themselves to help one another. Uh, so, you know, after these disasters, just like after yeah. any natural disaster, critics of the Jones Act immediately tried to claim, ah, this is responsible for delays or this is responsible for increased costs. What would you say to those critics? Well, I can't, I can't, the word that comes to mind is, is not appropriate to air in public. <laughs> um, but I think there's just a huge misunderstanding of the Jones Act. And, and quite honestly, you know, we have a very myopic view of, you know, can, can you get a commodity for pennies on the dollar less if we were to get rid of the Jones Act? Mm -hmm. um, you need to look at it more through a geopolitical you know, frame of mind. Um, and History is a great lesson. Um, we would not have prevailed in World War II if not for sea lift. Um, the highest number of casualties during World War II were our merchant mariners. It was sea lift. You know, we're pushing out a Liberty ship nearly every single day to provide that strategic lift. Um, today we're down to about five Jones Act shipyards. Uh -huh. um, and so uh, we're very vulnerable. We have a fleet right now of about 178 Jones Act ships. And obviously we can charter other ships. China has over 5,000. Oh. Um, to me, that's a big concern, um, that, that we are uh, really looking at this through a myopic economic lens, and we're not looking at the bigger picture. So let's say we have a global conflict. Mm -hmm. Sea lift is going to be just as critical in that, in that environment as well. And, and right now, um, the United States is ill-prepared yeah. uh, in, in that environment. So we need to think... We need to think longer term, and we need to look at the, the whole picture and not just through one lens. Welcome to American Maritime Voices, your place to be heard. As part of American Maritime, you are critical to moving and securing our country. And now you can help tell the story of Maritime and be part of key decisions that affect it. American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. It's free to become a voice, and we'll keep you informed of what's happening in Washington so you can help change the course of issues that matter most to you. As a voice, you'll get monthly updates, have access to podcasts and videos, and receive action alerts when your voice is needed most. The future of Maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. 
And so what would life in Hawaii, particular as a non-contiguous state that's totally dependent on that kind of maritime capacity, what would life in Hawaii be like without the regular dedicated service of American maritime powered by the Jones Act? Yeah. So if you look at the global supply chain, um, in all these economies are interdependent. Um, EOS, uh, actually our number one trade partner uh, through Bloomberg, now says it's no longer China, it's Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, our top three partners are actually Mexico, China, and Canada. Um, very much North American, obviously North and South. That's a land land bridge, um, but our maritime bridge with China. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at some of the not just rhetoric, uh, but some of the behavior that we're seeing in China, mm-hmm. you know, not playing by the rules. Um, you know, right now there's a barrier on Scarborough Reef, which was well within the economic exclusive zone of the Philippines, and yet they're telling Philippines, you know, we've blocked off access to your island. Right. Um, if that were to happen in the United States, uh, that would be tantamount to an act of war. But what we're seeing is uh, not playing by the rules with China. Uh, and, and when you start looking at the international maritime community, mm-hmm. they look to the United States, right. um, not only abiding by the rules, but really being uh, the protector of maritime governance as well. You know, we have no colonial aspirations in, in, in the countries whose sovereignty that we help protect when you talk about freedom of navigation. Mm-hmm. It's really about protecting the global commons. Right. Um, so right now what I see as a, a concern is China's usurping of the global commons um, to their unilateral good. Yeah. Let's talk more about China. Um, obviously, what they're saying, what they're doing, is all about becoming a dominant maritime power. How can American maritime capacity respond to that? How is it a barrier to that th- those aspirations? Yeah. So, I mean, you really have to look at, you know, when we talk about maritime security, you can't just look at it through a military perspective. You also have to look at it through an economic one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the, you know, the U.S. and Chinese economies are very much interdependent. Mm-hmm. It's in our mutual interest to make sure that we have a free and open, you know, global commons. Um, and, and we certainly endorse that. Not only do we endorse it, we enforce it. You know, today we have not just U.S. Navy, we have U.S. Coast Guard ships um, in the East and South China Sea mm-hmm. advancing freedom of navigation. Um, and, and so uh, we, we see a, a trading partner that's speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, at a point in time where... You know, there, there's some tremors in the Chinese economy. You know, we're seeing it in the real estate market, not unlike what we experienced uh, not that long ago. Uh, and there's excess capacity in housing, and a lot of that economy was driven by new construction, uh, and now they're defaulting on, mm-hmm. you know, multi-billion dollar loans. Um, and so there's this, a disturbance in the force right now in China. Um we might want to step back and say, applaud, hey, great, your economy is failing. Um, but what's bad for China could have economic reverberations here in the United States as well. So we need to be careful of how we react to you know, China's challenges that they now face economically. Right. I mean, the way that you're telling it, it just sounds like it's important that we don't become too dependent on Chinese shipping services, especially for these non-contiguous states, so that they're not dependent, they don't have to be a victim to whatever happens in China and can really depend on their fellow Americans, American capacity to really make sure that they don't have those supply chain interruptions that we saw during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Right. Uh, What would America look like if we did not have the Jones Act? That's a scary thought to Uh ponder in your mind. Uh, When you look at, you know, not just 
you know, ocean shipping, inland shipping, you know, up and down the Mississippi River, you know, one of our biggest thoroughfares, not enough water in it right now. Uh, but everything from our inland waterway systems that connect to our deep water ports that connect to the global commons, um, all of that is now a foreign entity that we are now dependent upon. Right. Um, it almost takes us back to the birth of our nation. Uh, we we're very dependent on, on the goodwill of others to do our bidding. Right. Um, and it, right now, we are the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth. We, we are not back in the 1700s. Right. So let's wake up. Um, we are a mighty nation, and we just need to simply invest in, in this great capability. Uh, our, one of our greatest geographic natural resources in the United States is our deep water ports that connect to rivers. Mm -hmm. um, any other nation you know, probably looks from outer space on the United States with envy and says, it's not fair. They've got rivers and they've got natural deep water ports that connect to the global commons. Um, that's something we don't have. But boy, if we can find our way to weasel our way into that network, you know, wouldn't that be great for us? Right. Um, and so I don't think we want a potential adversary, you know, doing our bidding, you know, working in our inland waterways, moving uh, especially dangerous cargoes mm -hmm. through metropolitan areas. Um, it, it raises all sorts of red flags in, in terms of the risk that it exposes our U.S. citizens to. Yeah. Absolutely. Not to mention the Coast Guard, who is responsible for checking all of these ships and making right. sure everyone's compliant and the background with everyone. And, you know, the Coast Guard is already uh, stretched so thin with 11 statutory missions and uh, workforce mm. about the size of the NYPD. Uh, what would the impact on the Coast Guard specifically be without a Jones Act? Yeah. Well, I think without the Jones Act, um, one, you know, we no longer have U.S. licensed mariners. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that starts to deplete. Um, and, and then who are these people that, that are now, you know, we're dependent upon for our global supply chain? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have security measures in place. We have the transportation worker identifi identification credential. Um, so we have a pretty good idea. We know who our people are. Right. Um, less certain in terms of who are these other mariners to the point where, you know, crew members are not allowed to leave the ship. Um, so you have that aspect of the human component, um, uh, which weighs huge. Um, right now, our... You know, our shipbuilding, um, is Navy, Coast Guard, uh, dependent on U.S. shipyards, um, which is written into the Jones Act. Yeah, do we want a foreign builder to build the next right. Ford Offshore patrol cutting, right. <laughs> do we want a foreign builder to build the next ballistic submarine? Um, you know, there's a huge learning curve that goes into shipbuilding. Mm -hmm. um, and if we divest of that, you may not ever get it back again. Right. There's a lot of lost knowledge, a lot of lost skill set, exactly. a lot of lost waterfront property that gets that gets mm -hmm. snatched off. It could be a real a real challenge. Um, and, and these are meaningful jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so huge impact on on the workforce as well. Um, and again, uh, what would the United States look like without a Jones Act? Um, again, you know, we're using economic sanctions as a strategic lever to influence international behavior. Um, and so to, what if we fall out of favor with a potential adversary, uh, and now they use their leverage maritime-wise to cripple our economy, right. which, which can certainly be done. Right. Um, I, I don't think we want to expose ourselves to all these risks 
when we ask ourselves, really, what is broken? Um, when I look, you know, look out over the last, look in the rearview mirror, um, the cost of shipping has remained pretty much steady. Mm-hmm. Um, few ripples in terms of cost of fuel, which is probably one of the biggest drivers in shipping. Um, but it's pretty much a constant. But what's really critical is the reliability of that supply chain. Um, when I look at the supply chain from Jacksonville, Florida, to Puerto, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, uh, it's like a bus schedule yes. that runs on time. Yeah. Um, and it's no different between L.A., Long Beach, Oakland, Hawaii. And Hawaii is really a hub for a lot of Oceania and the out, out, outlying islands of Hawaii as well. So it is a schedule that's reliable, it's repeatable, uh, and it's moving U.S. goods to U.S. consumers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, during the pandemic, we saw that, you know, shipping kind of went, especially foreign flag shipping, uh, went sky high because people were buying so much stuff. But at the same time, folks in Hawaii and Puerto Rico and Alaska were still getting that regular bus service, like you Mm -hmm. said, and they didn't have these kind of interruptions that a lot of other smaller markets saw during uh, during that crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a bit more about the Coast Guard. Uh, how are they, are they, you know, as, as we mentioned, they, they have quite a lot to do. They've got, they always have, uh, you know, first respond, response for a lot of different crises. Are they being resourced appropriately for what they need? Uh, it was a challenge during my tenure as commandant, mm-hmm. and, you know, that challenge uh, persists. Um, you know, not just in terms of uh, on the budgetary side, but even on, um, you know, what the Coast Guard needs to carry out its mission. Um, right now, the, um, you know, the building out of a, a Polar Class Two icebreaker has languished. Um, Bollinger Shipyard has now taken over that contract. Uh, the reason it's taken so long here in the United States to build one mm-hmm. is we haven't built one in over 45 years. We can build an aircraft carrier quicker than we can build an icebreaker in the United States right now. Wow. So that's a challenge for the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, dealing with flatline budgets, obviously, it's a huge challenge when the demand signal for the Coast Guard is going up. Um, you know, there, there's a big drive right now on illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, mm-hmm. um, which has now risen to the highest levels from a national security perspective. Um, and the threats aren't necessarily along the U.S. coast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in distant waters. And when you look at distant waters, I look at the 3,000 or so distant water fishing vessels from China. Uh, that are now fishing these waters because, quite honestly, their waters are completely depleted of fish. Um, China consumes about one-third of the fish on a global scale right now. Whoa. So, <laughs> so they're everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and nations are looking to the United States Coast Guard. Uh, you know, can you Help protect us. our yeah. economy? Uh-huh. Um, and so through that mechanism, the Coast Guard has over 60 bilateral agreements that allow us to do enforcement operations uh, into the territorial seas of these signatory nations, whether it's for fish, drugs, or, you know, God forbid it's a weapon of mass destruction being su- uh, smuggled. But the Coast Guard has all of these unique authorities, but obviously we can't be in all places at all times. But where is the Coast Guard? Very big in the Pacific, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, southern tip of Africa, off Cape Horn, uh, China's there as well. The other thing the Coast Guard needs is better maritime domain awareness. Um, And I'm very familiar with the technologies that are out there that are space-based that that would drill down and and provide near real-time situational awareness where illicit activity is most likely occurring. 
the old model for the Coast Guard many times is, you know, we're going to launch an aircraft, uh, we're going to, you know, you know, scour, you know, a wide area of the ocean, mm -hmm. uh, we might detect something, we might not, and then it's going to take, you know, days, if not weeks, to get somebody on scene to apprehend that illegal activity. Right. Um, and by that time, they, they're gone. Um, so I think the Coast Guard needs to look at better ways to leverage technology, what I call taking the search out of rescue, mm -hmm. but in this case, really starting to pinpoint where the hot spots are on a global scale, um, now, not only where the Coast Guard needs to be tactically, but what relationships, what authorities do we need uh, to be able to actually take enforcement action, because that's, that's what it's really going to take um, to deter this activity from taking place. And so bigger picture, uh, you know, looking at the Coast Guard, thinking about the other maritime service, the Merchant Marine, uh, something that we've needed for a long time and that Congress has directed others to do is to develop a maritime strategy. Uh, so now that you're out of uniform, what would that big, you know, what would you recommend that big picture maritime strategy for the United States look like? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, we need to, you know, fully un understand and appreciate that this aspect that I call the global commons. Mm -hmm. And within this global commons, there are what I would say, you know, rules of behavior, rules of law, good governance, uh, to make sure that this global commons um, is, is free and open to all nations. Yeah. Um, and if you have nations that don't see it that way, then you need, you know, you, you, you're going to need that big stick right. um, to be the vanguard of this open global commons. Um, and that's why we have the world's best Navy, uh, to be able to do just that. Um, the other aspect of that is you need ships. Um, and right now, as I said earlier, our U.S. flag fleet is, I think, 178 or so ships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're at a huge disadvantage um, you know, in, in terms of our resiliency. Um, you know, in, you know, if we need to surge more ships, and like here World I'm War talking II. in a military yeah. contingency, um, we're going to have to ask others to do our bidding for us. Um, so that's a vulnerability as well. Um, and we need to look just beyond the maritime. We need to look at what makes maritime. You know, and it's people, it's shipyards, it's technology. I think all of those come into play. Uh, you know, then there's the wild cards that are out there. Um, you know, what does artificial intelligence look like? Uh, you know, we're right on the leading edge, bleeding edge of artificial intelligence, um, what I call remotely operated. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not completely autonomous vehicles, but, you know, do we move into autonomous shipping um, and, and not manned shipping? Um, you know, that may have some uh, merit to it as well, but I think those are branches and sequels to, you know, what I would say, you know, the underpinnings of a maritime strategy are uh, a global commons, free and open, uh, sea lanes, rules of governments that all nations abide by, um, and then there's the whole human component that goes with that as well. Right. All right, well, thank you. I think you've answered all of my questions, but before we close out this episode of American Maritime Podcast, is there anything else about American Maritime that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So you can't end any discussion these days without the world word climate change. Uh, when I was still on active duty, it, it kind of became a very politically charged statement. Um, but I'm looking at it from, from a very objective standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, having been in the Arctic and looking what's happening in Antarctica, um, these are the canaries in the coal mine where we're seeing you know, more than two to three times rises in temperature uh, that are impacting 
glaciers melt, oceans rise, um, and water temperatures are going up. Uh, we're seeing, you know, a, a disbursement of some of the fish stocks that many nations rely upon. Um, and if those fish stocks are no longer reliable, some of these, especially in, in island nations, um, their primary natural resource it's is fish. fish. Yeah. Um, and so what happens when you lose your economic leg? It's no different than what we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa. People vote with their feet and they leave. And now you have, you know, you know, economically driven, climate driven, you know, migration, uh, yeah. migration, whether it's from a rising sea and your nation is now underwater. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you look at all of our coastal infrastructure, um, and, and what would, you know, a, a three to five foot rise in sea level look like? Um, and then you throw a natural disaster on top of that. Uh, we haven't really made the planning and the effort to make those more resilient than they are today. So I would just close with that thought. Um, you know, we may be content with where we are today with our coastal infrastructure, um, but we need to be looking longer term, you know, out to the end of this century in, in terms of, you know, where do, I, where do we invest, where do we divest, um, what do we do to make these, you know, pillars of our economy more resilient than they are today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that a lot of uh, American maritime companies are making that investment. With some of these new vessels that we're seeing delivered, we're seeing totally new engines, uh, new types of uh, energy products that are really focused on working with the challenges of climate change and making sure that we are ready for that because it's yeah. really important, like you yeah. said. Thank you so much for joining us, Admiral Zukov, okay. and thank you again for your service to the nation. We okay. really are so grateful for everything you've done and for your leadership of the Coast Guard and maritime generally. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of American Maritime Podcast. I'm your host, Sada Fuentes. To learn more, you can join us at AmericanMaritimeVoices.org and become a voice for American Maritime. Again, that's AmericanMaritimeVoices.org. Thank you and see you next time. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one?